Hello, and welcome to Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, alongside none other than John Tesh. How you doing, John? I'm awesome. I can't wait for your interview today. Our guest this week is Dr. Dacker Keltner. He is an author. He is a UC Berkeley professor of psychology, and he founded the Greater Good Science Center. Now, we on Facebook, we have talked to some other members of the Greater Good Science Center, and it is a psychology institute uh, with, uh, at, at Berkeley with uh, where they take it's basically like our show they take the latest psychological research and use it to tell you how to become better Uh, a link to that in the show notes and i have to tell you this this is my favorite interview i've ever done wow it's a little bit dense i want to warn you guys ahead of time it's a little bit dense but i had such a good time talking to 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 dr keltner and i i i I legitimately can say this is my favorite interview that's awesome i can't wait that's gonna be amazing the great thing about the podcast too is that if if you get to it gets too dense just rewind the thing yeah yeah hit that 10 seconds rewind button i love that again our goal is to is to take what we do on the radio show and give you guys a longer more in-depth version of some of the research that we're doing behind the scenes and talks like this are exactly the kind of thing that 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 we want you guys to embrace and, and that, that we are doing behind the scenes. So and my, my goal is to give you a conversation starter before we get to Gibbs interview. Hey, uh, and I, lo- I love this one and I, and I, and give your bit big Netflix fan big. Uh, so in, uh, there's a new term called Netflixing in public. We were talking about this on the radio show, but we wanted, wanted to bring it to you guys on the podcast. New study from the folks at Netflix has found that 67% of users watch their shows in public at least part of the time. Definitely. Uh, most popular place to watch Netflix is in public at, and at work. Uh-huh. So 37% of users surveyed admitted to binge watching at work. One in five users surveyed said they'd openly cried while watching Netflix in public. I have. I've been on an airplane <laughs> and, I've, and I've, I've openly cried at movies that I had no business crying at. The other thing I have a problem with, is, especially on airplanes, is I, that's probably where I, well, I mean, everybody watches Netflix on airplanes, but I, I've, I find that like, if I'm watching on an airplane, I didn't even know you could watch it on there. I thought they well, had you stopped down- their streaming. You download. Oh, you download oh gosh, it, and then you right, sit and you watch. Right, you put right, it on right, your gotcha, phone or your gotcha. iPad or whatever. Yeah. Um. So I'll be sitting there watching the watching show, and I like shows that are a little usually a little darker and grittier. Right. And there will sometimes be very either like some graphic scenes that are either violent or or, or sexual in nature and. They're part of the plot, but they're very graphic. And when I'm on an airplane, I feel very paranoid. And and usually, like, I can't turn away because I need to know what's going on. So you, I'm, you, I'm awkwardly covering up the screen oh while trying to stare and by at By then, it. it's too late because oh, it popped up because you oh, know what's yeah. coming. Yeah. And, like, and there's some kid behind me who just saw it, and I feel, and I feel terribly. Uh, but that's, You need the VR glasses. Yeah, that's the, and they make that special... Um, a glass. They make that special glass you can put yeah. over your phone or your yeah, iPad that yeah. makes it so you can't see it from multiple angles. But I don't have that, so <laughs> I get in trouble for Netflixing in public. Wow. Well, and, and you know, and the thing is, the whole thing is that when they when you you, you think you, you've got a PG film on there or whatever, mm-hmm. or even you know, and and then it pops. That happened to me with Game of Thrones. Oh yeah. And uh, I, I thought I was watching Swords, and all of a sudden it got weird. And, and, and that's the one time your wife decides right. to walk into <laughs> right, the room. Right. Is right. that wait? I, I understand what they're doing. I just it's important for the plot. Yeah, yeah, so twenty-two percent of of Netflixers have been embarrassed by what they're yep. watching. I'm among just them. like what Gib is talking about. And uh, the study also found Gib that men are more likely than women to Netflix in the bathroom. I, I don't know why women wouldn't. Yeah, I, I, they, I, I, you know, and they're not. There's not like there's a camera in there watching everybody. It's it's who admits to what, right? Right. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I and I I have Netflix. If if I'm not doing something that requires my attention, Netflix is just kind of streaming in the background. Maybe I'm watching old episodes of Arrested Development or whatever, but I, 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 it's great to have that on-demand entertainment on, and it's, it's, 
it's not best for my brain, but I, I can't help it. One more thing I wanted to get your, uh, uh, your, your take on before we get to your interview. Uh, kids now are, are apparently studying uh, adulting. There's a, there are courses in many high schools across North America on adulting and also in, in colleges for, for freshmen. It's things like dorm room cooking, how to do that, how to change a tire in this yep. course, how to manage credit cards and personal finances. I could have used that. Uh, doing taxes, how to do that, how to talk to police officers during traffic stops, and how to handle getting homesick when away at college. I was very homesick my freshman year. So that this is the new adulting course that's very popular. I feel like, well, like for, first of all, I think algebra and biology are very important. I think we should be teaching people that because it teaches you how to think. So this is not a dig on what we are learning in school, but I feel like these kinds of things used to be taught in school more often and used to be a part of people's upbringing and families. And now so many things are automated that we never learn how to do this stuff. Instead of teaching your kid how to change a tire, you get them a, a, an auto club membership. And, and, <laughs> right. And it's yeah. helpful, but it, you know, there's times when your car is stopped and there's no yeah. auto club around and you got yeah. you got to know how to change the tire. And I feel like what's missing from a lot of schools and from a lot of people, and we need to sit down and start doing it. So I, I applaud the fact that they do this. And I, I've seen so many, uh, I mentioned this on the air, on the, on the radio side of things, I've seen so many tweets from people saying, like, I know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but I have no idea how to do my taxes. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I feel like people feel, people feel cheated by their, by their education. And it does not mean that no, knowing that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell is unimportant. It just means we also need to go back to teaching some of this stuff. Yeah. And parents, yeah. teach your kids this stuff. Please. Yeah, please. So there you go. That's the latest on adulting and on Netflixing in public and crying <laughs> when you're watching Netflix. Uh, so set us up gear okay. for the interview. So here, here's, here's Dr. Keltner. He's going to talk about the dynamics of power. He's written a couple of books on the subject, why people in power do bad things. We're going to talk about um, all kinds of incredible things about, about, the di- about modern psychology and how we, uh, and how we approach our, our modern life and, and the philosophy behind it. I mean, he is a, is a deep, deep thinker. And I got him to admit uh, that, that we are addicted to technology. He started off not being willing to admit that, but I finally convinced him to, be, to admit that as a society, we are addicted to technology. I'm very proud of that fact. So anyway, here is Dr. Keltner, and I'll put a link to his books in the show notes. They are, they are great reads. Dr. Dacker Keltner, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. We appreciate your time. It's good to be with you, Gib. Okay, so your research is mostly in the interpersonal characteristics of emotion. Now, I watch yeah. a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> I uh, I always find that the Vulcans and the Borg are superior tacticians and logicians. Obviously, this is a question that has been asked by a lot of pop culture and a lot of art has asked the question of are emotions necessary? So yeah. why why do we have why do we have emotion? Because I you know again going off of Star Trek, Spock is the way better person than Kirk. Yeah, you know, so when I teach human emotion at UC Berkeley, um, often I start the class with this philosophical exercise that was created by a philosopher, which is that, you know, imagine you had a switch that activated your brain in different ways, and you could flip it, and you could shut down from that moment going forward your experience of the emotions, or would you keep it, you know, on and keep your emotions? And a lot of students immediately think like, yeah, I'd love to flip the switch and turn off the emotions. Mm -hmm not have envy or anger, jealousy or shame or what have you. And then most eventually come to the uh, sense that without emotions, um, you really lose enormous things in life. And, and what the science shows to answer your question, Gib, is the first thing that emotions do is they really guide us in social interactions, like you're saying. You know, So how we fall in love, how we take care of a baby, how we navigate status dynamics at work, 
emotions are right. They're a language through which we uh, do those interactions. Secondly, they they act like uh, a compass in terms of how you understand different situations in the world, what you think of as dangerous or unjust or worthy of your kindness are guided by emotions. And the third, and there's a little bit less science around this, and it may be the most important, which is people are starting to realize that, you know, whether you find happiness in life really is grounded in knowing what your core passions are and Mm. living a life that honors them, right? Are you a an awe person or a gratitude person or a beauty person or uh, excitement. So they matter a lot for our lives. And are they more, I mean, so I, 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 I don't necessarily ascribe to this philosophy, but there is this idea that emotions, including love and some of the happiness things, these are just uh, neurochemical triggers that are meant to make us more likely to pass our, I mean, just from a pure, pass our genes on from a purely Darwinian standpoint, do, do they, do they actually, are they real? I mean, uh, you know, how, how real are they? Or are they just our own genes manipulating us into, into continuing the species? Well, they're both. And, and thanks for articulating that. I mean, so within the field of emotion, it truly traces back to Charles Darwin and then people like Paul Ekman, whom your audience may have heard of, who did the facial expression work. A lot mm. of people today, including myself, we as scientists approach emotions from an evolutionary standpoint and, and what they do, and E.O. Wilson, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, evolutionary thinker, observed recently in a book, 2015, that we survive because of our social strengths and our community and our, and our tribalism and so forth. And emotions really help us, you know, like gratitude helps us form friendships and awe helps us find the social collectives that matter to us. Love connects us to romantic partners, et cetera. So... They are. They do have an evolutionary substance that we're really thinking about, and they they're very real. Um, there is remarkable new work uh, in the last year or two by my student Alan Cowan and other collabor- collaborators showing there are about twenty different emotions that you can find their patterns in the brain. Uh, I study the human body, peripheral physiology. There are very clear patterns of emotion related to physiology, and then of course facial expression, vocalization. Uh, those are, you know, anatomical manifestations uh, of what we try to communicate or, or, or processes. And, and there are 15, 20 emotions. You know, you can, with little sounds of the human vocal apparatus, oh, mmm, yeah. ah, right? We, so there's a lot of substance around the world to these emotions. Yeah, so you just mentioned, you know, the, the vocal apparatus, and we've had a lot of guests on this show who are uh, who talk about just the absolute detriment that screen time is doing to our understanding yeah. of each other's emotions yeah. uh and 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 particularly in that we cannot convey facial expressions and vocal vocalizations uh and 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 how that's killing our empathy uh yeah. you're saying yes does, you, does your does your research support that well you know i i think it's i i you know it's interesting i was brought into uh facebook seven eight years ago by a fellow named Arturo Bejar, who, you know, he was, he was interested in that question of like, how do we take the absolute exquisite way in which we signal emotion with our face and our voice and our eyes and our blushes and our bodies and our hands and our gestures, and we build it into the online experience. And I think in some ways there are success stories. So, you know, we help rely on the science of emotion uh, of facial expression to help redesign Facebook's reactions tool, where you could show five emotions, whatever, to mm. how you react to things. 
And I think that I think visually we'll get closer to what real human life and human empathy is like. But you're absolutely right, Gib. You know, people so often forget how important the voice is to our social lives, right? Irony and sarcasm and teasing. Yeah, love. sarcasm in particular that really does not translate well to the written word, unless it's it's impossible. Yeah, you know, so or not impossible, but it's really compromised. And there we're going to fall short. And there's no substitute for the tens of millions of years of evolution that have crafted and shaped how we communicate face to face. So it's great to be online with you. Yeah, right. <laughs> but so what I hear you saying is that basically we have emojis have been used to supplant that need and keep us addicted to the emotional interactions that we get. I mean, that, is that why emojis took off so quickly? Well, they took off. I don't, you know, so you're going to, uh, you're going to hear the caution of a scientist. Like, I don't think we're addicted to online life. Most of us are Come not. Come on. It's not like an opioid addiction. Fair or, enough. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you know, but, and, and I do think they diminish the online experience diminishes to your earlier observation, a little bit of empathy. Yeah. You know, the, the emoji took off, uh, and they're incredible because, because we're a, a profoundly visual species and we care a lot about what we see in people's faces. Mm -hmm. And it's a first approximation to how to do it. You know, started in Korea and Japan and uh, has a lot of artistic variations. And on, the, on balance, I think they're probably a positive thing for human experience. You mean you think that they help bridge that a little bit? Of the, uh, obviously not completely, but they bridge a little bit of that gap in the written word? I do. I do. Okay, uh, I got to I mean, I have more stuff I want to ask you about about your research, but I want to <laughs> sure. go back to something you just said. You yeah. don't think that we're addicted to to being to screen time and being online. Uh, well, I, mean, you're, you, I, I would say you're in the minority of psychological academic researchers in that sense. Well, that's well, you know, um, so, you know, this is where, you know, psychological scientists like myself use words a little differently. Fair enough. And and, you know, in a in a kind of a ridiculous way, but you know, we, we routinely say like, well, that person's OCD, but it's not really OCD. You know, addiction right. is where you can't live without the thing. If you travel, you got to have it. And, and a lot of people would probably fit that profile, mm -hmm. but I don't think that they're going to suffer physically from withdrawals. Um, but yeah, no, it has, um, put itself online experience nine hours a day, I think, for the average American, I Which heard. is insane <laughs> to be staring at your rectangle for nine hours a day. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's interesting because, you know, even like if you and I were in a bar having a beer or at a game or walking somewhere, man, we'd have all this great social stuff, right? We'd be nudging each other, mm -hmm. you know, moving around. Um, that's real life. And you right. think about staring at a little screen. It's ridiculous. Right. It's so, an ersatz yeah. interaction. It's, it doesn't really tickle the part of the brain that we need to have tickled. It tickles this other part of the brain that we get addicted to, the dopamine rush. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I, I mean, that's that needs a little bit more empirical data around that thesis. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but Spoken I like a I, true academic. I know. But hey, here's the thing, Gib. And, you know, when I teach managers and executives... You know, they always say, what about online stuff? And it's like, there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. There's no substitute for face-to-face -face in everything that matters. The rest is a cheap imitation. Fair enough. Okay, so I want to <laughs> pivot here. I mean, we're, we're getting a little bit into disorders here. Uh, and, and so we, we with, with what I, I'm gonna, still going to call it an addiction, but again, you have a different yeah, standard you sure. have to deal with. Um, but uh, so, so if emotions are real, 
and emotions are necessary from a human interaction standpoint, right? That there is yeah. a certain fundamental thing, even if we don't fully understand it, we have this certain attachment that we have to have when it comes to emotions. Yeah. Where do where do emotional disorders fit, fit into that? People who have um, the very rare, although often, like you said, often uh, thrown around psychopathy, sociopathy, these these completely detached emotional disorders, uh, or even you know even more minor ones, these these yeah. narcissist borderline personality disorders, narcissistic yeah. personality disorders that we're seeing, especially with online, uh, play out more and more. Uh, you know, how, how does that fit into it? Yeah, you know. Um... The if emotions are one of the primary ways in which we adapt successfully to life, um, then, you know, deviations in emotional response will prove to be problematic to how how well we live and the meaning we derive. And your emotion profile, for example, how much joy you're feeling and are you laughing? And you, do you feel grateful for things you have and do you feel joy and uh, or fear versus shame and anger really predict how happy you are. They're yeah. almost synonymous. They predict your life expectancy. They are very, as Ann Kring and I, uh, 20 years ago, when you look at the classification of different disorders, like anxiety disorder, depression, um, you know, antisocial disorders in young boys and so forth, uh, emotions are present in, in 40 to 50% of the symptoms they use to classify these disorders. So they're right at the heart of the meaningful life and and where that those disruptions come from uh, part of its genetic right so if you have a particular variation on a certain chromosome and then it influences parts of the brain that help you listen to people carefully you will be more vulnerable to say autism disorder spectrum mm. uh, the family matters life context matters a really hot new area give and I think this is going to transform our understanding of emotional disorders is trauma. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you know this literature, but there's a big study at Kaiser, the ACEs study, early childhood adverse experience or adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. I, and, you I, know, I mean, I don't know it. I'm, I, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a so broadcaster, simple, not a, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. But it's so important just to remember Right. You see somebody on the street who's really struggling. Like we have a lot of homeless at Berkeley, mm -hmm. in Berkeley and they're showing psychopathy or, or rage. If you go back into their childhood when they're four or five, very likely they have been beaten, sexually assaulted, suffered uh, the, pro the issues of poverty like malnutrition mm -hmm. uh, and had mental disorder violence in their lives. So trauma is going to be a big player in this story. And does that affect which genes that you mentioned before, which, which of those genes are actually expressed? Yeah. I mean, we, we don't know, uh, you know, the, the literature on epigenetics uh, is, is the next big area in the gene story. Mm -hmm. but, but we will start to learn, and there are studies of, of rodents, you know, that if I am in a traumatic familial context where, let's say, my mother is aggressive towards me, that will affect um, certain methylation on, on DNA that, that affects the expression of genes. So it's coming, and we will have a clearer story in the next 20 years. But it's important also to just remember the life context, that if, you, if, you know, if Gibb was raised in the Congo during a, a violent genocidal civil war, wow. you're gonna, you're gonna, your emotional life will be forever disrupted. 
And that may, and that makes sense. But it, but you're saying even at the at the cellular level, right? Yeah, and that's where the. I mean, it's it's thrilling to think about just scientifically that you know, for example, if I come from, if my grandparents were in the Holocaust, that trauma is registered in my DNA and the expression of my genes. Wow. What a I know it's it's their preliminary findings and it's mind blowing. Okay, so I mean, there's a little we we got a little um, a little scientific in there. So so uh, I, no no no, it's not your. I want you to, but I just want to unpack it really fast. So so again, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it, and you tell me if if I've paraphrased it correctly. There are certain traumas that we can experience in our life that will literally affect the way that our genes the way that our genes play out in our body change our 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 brain chemistry and even will change how those genes are passed on to future generations yeah and and that that's the exactly the synopsis of what's called epigenetics that environmental experiences shape the what genes are expressed and then influence the physiological systems that make up your body so that is- absolute insanity i mean I, I, it is that it is. is just i mean and i think too with what i find interesting is my children uh each of them came out of the womb i mean first month there is no nurture yet i mean obviously there's some yeah. minor nurture, but they came out of the womb with elements of their personality that i still see in them today uh and i and like it it, it made me so it put me so firmly in the nature camp over the nurture camp, right? That's that's where the big one of the big psychological questions is nature versus nurture. I, I've been he- heavily in the nature camp uh, yeah. since my kids were born, but yeah. but I but what's interesting here is no matter what the nature is, you can actually even change nature with nurture, right? I know. No, it's you know, and and that you know we the field you know we twenty thirty years ago was more nurture. Then the genetics revolution, you know, mapping the genome, et cetera, we became more nature. Now there's this new work on family context, violence, trauma, kind of influences the degree to which particular genes will alter proteins and produce parts of your body or your brain. So now we're more in a nurture movement. And it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely astounding. And it really changes, right? how you think about your children. A hundred percent. I'm rethinking every parental decision I've ever made right now. <laughs> that will continue for the rest of your I, life. Yeah, I've, and, I've been told. But, but you know, what happens is like, wow, you're suddenly you, you have this sense of my son is having a depressive episode when he's 22. And it kind of resembles how my grandfather had this depressive episode. And you yeah. suddenly get this window into, whoa, what, or he came out of war and that trauma affected him. It sheds light on phenomena in really new ways. So, so essentially, our, my great grandfather's PTSD might express itself in ways in me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <sighs> I know, I know. Uh, along that lines, you've done some some personality research that shows you can predict uh, with <laughs> with relative with relative certainty or or with with a good with a relative amount of accuracy. Uh, people's personality personality traits uh, up to thirty years later, based on what their senior yearbook photos show. <laughs> that, that almost seems like uh, like an anti. Uh, it's, it's very lackluster, anticlimactic, based on the fact that my grandfather's behavior affects my behavior now. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have those data, but yeah, you know, and it's so funny. This was a, a project with Leanne Harker, and here at UC Berkeley, there's a scientist named Ravenna Helson who has studied. 
uh, graduates of Mills College since 1958. It's the longest study of women's lives in human history. And, you know, and so she studied them for 55 years. And she came to me one day and she said, you know, we have their college senior yearbook photos. You study the face. And I study facial expression and the voice as we've been talking about. Um, do you think that the warmth or the strength of the smile uh, predicts how happy they are? And, you know, at first I was like, well, that's preposterous because I hated my yearbook photo. I think I was wearing a big velvet bow tie or something, mm. you know. Uh, most people think it's really artificial. How could that say anything about what your life would be like? But the re what we did is we coded two muscle movements, the zygomaticus major, which pulls your left corners up, the orbicularis oculi, which contracts around the eyes and gives you crow's feet uh, and uh, changes the shape of your eye. And those two muscle movements, when you see them, they tend to correlate with warmth and kindness and happiness. And they also, very importantly, um, if you have a nice smile, it tends to produce kindness and generosity in other people. It has social effects. And lo and behold, I didn't think the study would work. I poo-pooed it, but Leanne Harker did the work, coded 110 facial photos, measured how warm the woman was in 1958, and it told us how happy she was, how happy her marriage was, how much she was wow. accomplishing goals in life. So wow. with the point being, these fleeting emotions matter a lot. To what life is like now okay so so what i'm hearing now from like a personal practical perspective now obviously as a i'll caveat this because as an academic you don't want to you don't want to equate correlation and causation but yeah yeah we've talked about how even smiling more will actually improve your mood right yeah so you, the more you smile the happier you will end up being essentially and we talk, i talk about this on the show all the time Fake it till you make it really is a viable worldview option when it comes to certain um, emotional traits. So, so if smiling makes me happier, by by and being happier yeah. makes me more successful and also reignites more further happiness. If I just smile more, will that lead to being successful more in the long term? Yeah, I, I you transitively. Know, yeah, I mean, I mean, so. You know, there are a lot of questions or issues embedded in that statement, as, as you have already anticipated. So uh, in general, we find if you cultivate smiling and let's say you cultivate a really engaging tone of voice and let's say you would cultivate a really nice way of patting people on the back and, and giving friendly hugs, um, you will have better social interactions. People will trust you more. You will. The, those Effect, social effects will produce more joy and fun and laughter and gratitude, and those emotions will boost your happiness. So, I, I you know, I, I think it's true. But you always the the deeper work, obviously, Gib, and you know this is you've got to do the mental work that that allows you to smile at people, that allows you to be peaceful around mm -hmm. a really difficult colleague, or to feel gratitude for people around you. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, one way to, to think of it is like you're raising kids. What's the advice you give them when they meet strangers? Do you say, well, you should smile and be kind or don't smile and be, you know, neutral in your voice. And I think the, the answer is self-evident. That's yeah. Well, okay. So, so basically <laughs> you, what you're saying is there's no easy one, one size fits all solution that I was hoping for. I wanted to get, I wanted to get rich <laughs> on smile therapy and you've just kind of. I've yes. gotten rid of that. 
I think you got more work to do. We have, um, you know, the, there's a lot of a lot of discussions now about uh, it's it's very popular in the news right now. The idea of uh, of power and wealth disparity, and yeah. also also yeah. more and more coming to light because of all the information being shared, all of the images we have of powerful people now that yeah. that power and um, borderline personality disorder or narcissistic yep. personality disorder are strongly correlated. About the same thing. <laughs> they say what? They're almost the same thing. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. So, so, uh, why, why is that? And and <laughs> how can we have more empathetic people in power? Yeah. Oh no. Um, yeah. So you know, one part of my research life, which we've been talking about, is positive emotion and joy and happiness. And I wrote this book, Born to Be Good, about that. And and the other part of my research life. Um, is power and hierarchy. And, you know, and I have a book out, The Power Paradox, uh, How We Gain and Lose Influence, and uh, that really talks about the 25 years of thinking on this. And it really, this is an old question that historians and, you know, people who write about the military and the Catholic Church and presidents and CEOs have really grappled with, which is, you know, what does power do to us? Mm -hmm. And and the the general consensus, you know, in the science, but do you think is, it's power or, doing it to us, or 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 those people become powerful? Well, I think the more complicated answer is both, right? Mm -hmm. That, uh, and and this is this is to your second question of like, well, how do we avoid these abuses of power? And, and part of it is like, think about the institutions that funnel people into politics or Wall Street, and and we should worry about those. But Ivy, I, know, Ivy well, League universities, I mean, that's that's. That seems yeah. to, if I was to look at the data, that those are the number one uh, indicators. Yeah. Exactly. And like, we could talk about that. But, the you know, is power narcissism? And, and I think that's a, a, you know, there are counterexamples, but that in general, when you give people power randomly in experiments and then you look out into the world and you do the connections to real world events, what you find is if I get power, I stop empathizing really carefully. I stop listening to you carefully. Mm -hmm. I think my desires should really rule the universe. Right. Um, I think I overestimate my talents and skills, mm. which is kind of a narcissism tendency. And you end up doing really inappropriate, abusive things. You know, so our lab, and I write about this in the power paradox, you know, give random assignment, give somebody power. They're doing a long study with other people. You put a plate of cookies in front of them. Uh, the power person randomly assigned always takes the last cookie and we coded what they eat like and they eat like the cookie monster. They eat with their mouths open, lips smacking, cookie crumbs falling all over. You know, it kind of turns into this impulsive maniac and to use exaggerated language. So, yeah, it's it's, you know, and I've been teaching this gig for 25 years mm -hmm. and every, you know, every sector, politics you know, uh, business, sports, religion, uh, you know, uh, popular culture, academics, professors, scientists, it, it just, for tw it just recycles itself. Oh, there's another powerful person groping somebody or stealing stuff or buying the, you know, the $20,000, whatever. So it's just a very deep, it's deeply ingrained into human nature to let loose when you have power. Now, do you think you could again fake it to make it? Could you, uh, could you exhibit certain personality disorder behavior or certain borderline personality disorder style behaviors, and 
And is there a correlation between that making you more, I, I hate to do this, making you more successful in life? Yeah, uh, you know. Financially, the, financially successful. Yeah, the, the thing, I think that it, and again, you know, I hope your listeners uh, appreciate the nuance of this because there's actually wisdom in this. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the, the way that they've looked at this and what they've found is that, you know, the, if you're kind of uh, narcissistic and, and you have this kind of self-serving complex of like, I just want things to benefit me, I'll screw people over mm-hmm. to advance in the world, I'm delusional. Um, those strategies work in really short-term encounters. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to negotiate with somebody in another country. I use all these selfish strategies and I'll do a little bit better. In more longer-term interactions, they, you, people tend to figure it out and then they are wary. And, and uh, But here's what's really interesting. I think the most judicious statement on this is that what you do want to do in terms of embodying a strategy to gain power. You don't want to be delusional or narcissistic. No comment on the president, by the way. But yeah, yeah, I, 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 we won't get specific about anybody. I just <laughs> there's been a lot of talk about the trend in this in this area, and, I, and we can yeah. talk trends. Yeah, and I think I think he's an exception to the rule. But uh, the but what you do want to do <laughs> is, and this is hard for me, is you want to be bold and speak up. And, and sometimes make the first move in a situation, mm-hmm. right? So if you're like with a bunch of new interns on Wall Street or, and you're joining a firm, you want to you wanna have a bold idea that you're courageous enough to put out there and be, speak up, right? And that, those, but don't, you know, don't become grandiose and don't think it's the best idea that humans have ever come up with. So the, but that's, I, I think that's kind of the hard thing, right? Self-confidence eventually yeah. or has a tendency it seems yeah. and it seems the research backs this up has a tendency to then create self-delusion yeah i and, agree and you see that in movie stars right you see these oh. movie stars who are so unbelievably successful with with a certain number of movies and then they start making more and more movies where nobody gets to tell them no anymore exactly. and they play nine characters and nobody wants to <laughs> i'm not gonna get specific again I can think of three off the top of my head, but they, it, but but nobody's nobody tells them no, and they think, oh, my instincts are are good, and they are. Yeah. Uh, my talent is high, therefore I must be right, and they stop listening to dissenting creative voices. I agree, and and you know I think that in some sense, I you know I think that's one of the most important lessons about power. You know, and it's interesting. You know, JFK after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, uh, you know, sent a bunch of CIA people down to Cuba to overthrow Castro and they uh-huh. were captured immediately on the beach. It was a total disaster. Yep. It was an idiotic venture, venture that a sixth grade class would have realized the problems of. After that, he's like, he pointed to his brother and he said, you got to always critique everything that I think. Um, and so I think that you're less likely to see these costly abuses of power where groups or institutions or families have that critic or that form of feedback and accountability. It's really obvious to say, but then you look at, you know, you look at like Harvey Weinstein, who I wrote about for uh, the Harvard Business Review and got into the Me Too conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a way, what was most striking, you know, people behave like, you know, they, they're, they behave sexually inappropriately mm-hmm. a lot of the time. That's life. Yeah, of course, his was violent and rape-like, which is different. Mm-hmm. But 
but there weren't any, there was the people around him were enabling it. Right. Right. And there was no one saying, Hey man, you know, that you're way out of line. Uh, you know, I'm going to let the press know or what have you. So you got to have your critics. It seems like what, 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 what I'm hearing you say is probably the most, the healthiest thing we could be doing is having, is having that check person, having that person that as we, as we come up, that person that we trust, assuming that, let's say I'm a person that's, that's achieving power, having that person that I trust as I come up and keeping that person with me no matter how powerful I become. And I would even say you got to have that, right? And I think that the great leaders will, will have, and we all have this in our lives, like as we get older, you know, hopefully, or we should, a couple of trusted confidants who will say, You're way, this is way off base, you're out of mm-hmm. line. But, but even you got to think systemically too, right? Uh, when Michael Lewis uh, wrote The Big Short, one of the most, you know, and he's a good friend of mine. And, you know, one of the things that struck him and me and others is, you know, as they built up these commodities that cost the U.S. trillions of dollars because they were junk, right? The collateralized debt swaps. Right. Or, um, what was striking is the ratings agencies were in cahoots with them, Right. Right. They were, they're like, yeah, we give this triple A and it was junk. So you got to be thinking about systems and is there literate, is there legitimate critique? What, one of the things I really, you know, for all, I, one of the things that, you know, I'm 27 years in as a scientist is blind peer review. You know, right. every, every finding I publish gets 15 pages, single spaced of absolute torture and hammering, right? That I'm just getting slammed. And that makes that makes me honest. But do you so that's great in academia, but that's really impractical in in the rest (laughs) of the world. I I mean, look, I I think think it's important. But how but if you're at if you're the CEO of a fast moving tech company that's growing at a rapid rate, has a has a billion dollars in debt that they're responsible for. How are you going to sit down and do and do the months that 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 peer review takes? Uh well, I, I think there are a lot of ways, right? You could do it with big data. You could do it algorithmically. You could figure out the right kind of stress tests for products. Uh, you, there are ton, there are a lot in many sectors. There's a lot of historical data. I think, and, and you know, and and you know, the, there are scientific journals that have weak, you know, weak turnarounds where it's like you send it. It's part of our commitment to the profession is to yeah. view our peers' work and be as tough as as possible and believe me you know um, and you see this as well um, you know medical decisions go through ethics boards and and those are really serious forms of feedback to the often the best doctors yeah i mean i you, I, I hear what you're saying that that yeah. feedback is 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 a crucial component i i just wonder how can individuals even who might be who may want to employ this concept and don't necessarily have the resources to get a peer-reviewed paper or to write even have the wherewithal to write a, an academic style paper for what their plan of action might be uh, how, how can they how can they put that check and balance into their life yeah I agree and, and I think that the, a lot of the failures that we see and we are concerned about are center upon this dynamic right so a lot of the data mismanagement, uh, at Facebook and, and a lot of the controversy recently about how they handled it. There's, there's very little really solid peer review Mm -hmm. or or even board review of what was going on. So, you know, it's, and this is, you know, it's so interesting. 
when you feel powerful, the other people around you are hesitant to offer this critique. Mm-hmm. Um, you're let you're kind of tone deaf to the critique of your own skills and efforts when you are seduced by power, and it it is enormously costly in human history. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my I, I've made no uh, I, I've made I've, I've I've made no attempt to hide the fact that I'm a big fan of of the Stoic philosophers, and and one, uh-huh. a book that I take with me everywhere I go uh, is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is his his journal. And wow. you're talking about the guy who I, I jokingly say literally invented Europe, and he <laughs> um, and his his writings he comes across as humble and seeking criticism and never quite sure of or not overly sure of how of how uh, of how his decisions are playing out. So I, I get the opposite sense, and and I. I'm 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 wondering if a that's a big part of his success and yeah. b if yeah. if that proves that um, or if he's the exception to the rule and that's kind of sad, but also if that proves that that you do need that humility and you will ultimately be more successful uh, in terms of founding a continent and a way of life uh, if you if you are able to do that. Yeah, I think you know it's funny. God, you're this is so so reflective and interesting, Gib. You know. I think we look at the um, kind of the outrageous behavior of people in power and we think, oh, that's what you got to do to gain power mm-hmm. and, and have enduring power and a legacy like Marcus Aurelius. And in fact, that's, it's just the opposite. It's just kind of their excesses that often signal their downfall. Um, and I love your analysis. You know, one of my favorite examples is, you know, he's the most influential um, scientist in my life is Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you could argue... He's got to be top 10 in terms of shaping world history. He was profoundly humble and worried about what other people thought about his scholarship, worried about whether his wife, Emma, would think about his thinking of, about evolution, mm-hmm. worried about just everything about his intellectual contributions. And, and it's partially why he was so profoundly influential in an enduring way. Yeah. I mean, so, I, so self-reflection clearly is important. Now, now my question, and uh, I know you, you're a busy man and, and I won't take up too much more of your time, but you're, you, this idea of self-reflection comes with it, this idea that there is a standard to which you should hold yourself, right? You, there, there is some sort of objective standard. And we live kind of in an era, I mean, postmodernism is, is how this, the era of our psychological and academic philosophy uh, is described right now is this yeah. idea that subjectivity and perspective is sometimes as important, if not always as important, as objective truth. So now with morality, is, yeah. there, is, there a, um, is there objective morality? I mean, is there some sort of built into us, is there this idea that, that there is right and wrong, or, or are the narcissists right and only the consequences of their actions are the only downsides? The only, only the consequences of their actions to them are the downsides. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think that um, I, I would side on the kind of in the world of Immanuel Kant and the ontological view rather than the consequentialist view that you're talking about. Of all that matters is the outcomes of your actions and and even worse, the Machiavellian view of who I critique in the power paradox of all that matters is winning, you know, um, and not the means by which you right. you win and and. And, and, you know, my friend John Haidt uh, has, I, you know, in his thinking about morality, I take issue with his thinking about university culture. Um, but 
my, which is his new book, but, you know, John Hyde's thinking about morality is this idea that, uh, and there are critiques and, but a lot of the data are lining up is that there, there are kind of six to 10 foundations of how we morally judge something, right? Mm -hmm. Is, is there harm? Uh, does, or how about freedom and rights? Uh, does it honor a sense of community? Is it, is it clean and pure? Uh, is there a sense of authority in there? And I think that when the data are, are really established in the next 20 years, we'll have a sense that most humans will, will respond, and there are data on this, to a, a baby suffering unfairly with serious compassion in a sense that you got to change that, that it's morally wrong. Right. So that's, that's pretty objective. It's rooted in what's called the periaqueductal gray in the brain. Uh, it triggers activation in, of chemicals in your body. So, and, and most of us will see the same stimulus and have a pretty closely resemble, uh, a, a response that is close to that. And that feels objective out right. in the world. Uh, but you know, there, you, it, it gets slippery once you get into more social constructs. So John has been very interested in what we considered pure, right? And in some cultures, purity, bodily purity, sexual purity, spiritual purity, mental purity really matter. Mm -hmm. um, parts of India, Buddhism and the like. And that gets really, I don't think, you know, I think people who have leprosy will be judged to be in violation of that principle, but I don't think we're going to find clear, objective uh, sort of sources of that moral judgment out in the world, and and the data line up with that. So it's a, a clear, objective story. understanding of what purity means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think so? For example, oh, you know, out here in California, vegans. We have a lot of vegans. Mm -hmm. If if they if they smell like you've had a cheeseburger and it's on your breath, <laughs> right. <laughs> You don't fare too well in their moral judgment, right? And, but that's that's a different that it's different in other parts of the world. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, do so you think you think that artificial intelligence is going to speed up this idea? Because <laughs> because you know you have you have Asimov's laws for robots, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which which is an attempt to sort of create a moral hierarchy within artificial huh. intelligence, and and seems like some of the stuff you're talking about uh, are things that we will probably need to teach our. Uh, <laughs> Uh, our, ro our eventual robot overlords, but our current, you know, robot assistants. <laughs> you know, it's so it's so interesting you say that because, uh, um, yeah, I, I think if if we want, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence and robots to to function like humans, uh, which is the one of the aspirations of you know the computational artificial intelligence types. Uh, out there, um, they're going to have to learn how to look at the moral world. They're going to have to look at, you know, a tortured body and say, we can't, that can never happen. Right. Uh, and, and that proves to be really hard. <laughs> well, yeah, because then you have to go even deeper. You, uh, one uh, of the issues of having with self-driving cars is how do you choose the lesser of two evils when both <laughs> outcomes are negative? Yeah. Yeah. Is it utilitarian? Like, well, there are five of those guys. Right. And they're, oh, but the one person is a little eight-year-old and, you know, yeah. she has all this promise in life. And our, our human brains, we make those moral calculations and then we suffer the human consequences of them. But obviously computers won't. Yeah. No, I know. So it's, it's, it's tricky. I think it's possible. I honestly think it's possible with big data. <laughs> oh, that's it. You've spoken like somebody that lives in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's everything is possible. All things are possible through big data who strengthens me. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about, about two things before I let you go, and that is yeah. uh, shameless promotion on your part. So you're part of, uh, of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us what that is and, and how people can benefit from that and how they can support it? Thank you, Gib. Um, you know, this has been one of the great delights in my career is, um, you know, 17 years ago with a couple of Berkeley alumni, the Hornadays, um, they had lost a daughter and wanted to sort of build up some kind of mechanism. This is before websites to promote goodness in the world. And since that time, we've uh, spent 17 years. We have a staff of 14, uh, you know, really curating and disseminating all the wisdom of the science of compassion and gratitude and mindfulness and stress and couples and forgiveness and awe that I wrote about in Born to Be Good and elsewhere. But we we created in these essays that people love. We now have Greater Good in Action, ggia.berkeley.edu, where there are practices. So I teach medical doctors, residents, how to kind of cultivate calm in the stresses of their life. And they can go there and say, ah, I want to learn how to practice the body scan or express gratitude to a colleague, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and then we host institutes for teachers and soon healthcare providers. But we have 6 million readers. Uh, I think we're a leading voice in the wellness, mindfulness, positive psychology movement. Uh, what I've been really thrilled by, uh, you know, you and I are probably interested in wellness, um, you know, but to get it to school teachers, mm -hmm. to get it to federal judges as we are and, and healthcare providers, that means this wisdom that you and I have been riffing off that everybody should have a, a chance to enjoy uh, or immerse themselves in, we can get it to a lot of people in, their fr in a friendly way. And, and I think predicated in the, in the idea of calling something the greater good means that there is some sort of objective morality standard to which you're <laughs> adhering. And that comes straight out, and I write about this in the Power Paradox, you know, that comes straight out of the era of enlightenment and uh, John Stuart Mill a little bit later and Francis Hutchin and others who, who said, how do we think about happiness or the goodness of my action? Mm -hmm. And their answer was the greater good. Does your action, how much good does it bring to the world? Right. And I think that's, pretty objective and a good answer to the question of how to live a meaningful life. Uh, what is your, which one is your newest book? I don't want to, I don't want to promote the wrong one. Which is the one that is, that is the newest one? <laughs> the newest one is the power paradox. Okay. Uh, which is 2016. And, and, and it, you've, you've referenced, I, I was looking at born to be good, which is probably yeah. your, your most famous work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'll, put, I'll put links to both of those books in Thank the, sh you. in the show notes and uh, real fast, so that people know, yeah. I, we've talked a lot about power today. What is, at its core, what is the thesis of the power paradox? I, I think there are two takeaways uh, for your audience to really think about. The first is, you really, I think we have to redefine power. Mm -hmm. and, and power is your capacity as a human being to make a difference in the world. And, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things for me and I know this isn't a quick answer, but, you know, all this like cultural anxiety about our political moment of Trump and, you know, all the stuff that he stirred up. I think one of the most worrisome consequences of that is it disempowers people. They think, 
It all depends on whatever insane thing he says in the morning. But in point of fact, you know, like the medical doctors I work with, whatever happens with affordable care, they're going to do their best work and be empowered in their provision of care. So power is your capacity to influence others and make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And then the thesis is we gain power by advancing the greater good, uh, by benefiting the many around us. But regrettably, the seductions of power make us lose those skills that got us power in the first place. All right. So, so if you want to go deeper on a big chunk of the conversation we had today, go ahead and and check out the the power paradox. One last thing, I know, I keep saying that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what one behavior you mentioned a body scan, right? Which I'm yeah. assuming you mean is in the mindfulness meditation sense of scanning your attention yeah. through yeah. your body. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of mindfulness meditation. I, I you know, I believe it's a denominational. It has it has no religious correlation. It is just a phenomenal way of of centering your brain. Um, totally. You can use it with prayer in any um, any uh, a- any religion that you the, or denomination you might adhere to. Uh, exactly. What one behavior? I like journaling too. What one behavior do you think people could start doing today that would uh, ultimately benefit them and and also increase their ability to affect the greater good? Yeah, you know the I, I you've you've totally nailed when people ask me this question. The first thing I always say is like develop a, a body awareness body scan type thing mm-hmm. with breathing involved. But the other one, Gib, is gratitude. And, and you know, um, I don't. I only have one paper on gratitude. I don't study it too much in my lab mm-hmm. or a couple of papers. But, boy, if you can get into a mindset of, of reflecting on what you can be grateful for, reflecting on deep gratitude, what people gave you in the trajectory of your life, if you reflect on the things you're grateful for in other people's lives, right? Uh, my brother right now is very ill. And I'm reflecting on the, the things he has had in his life that, that are worthy of gratitude. If you can get into that mindset, you're off to good things. Phenomenal. Well, all right. I'm going to let you go. Dr. Keltner, thank you so much. Links to all of his books in the show notes, plus uh, a link to the Greater Good Center. Uh, if people want to follow up with you in any other way, where, how do you want them to get a hold of you? Uh, at my email, keltner at berkeley.edu. Wow. Giving out your email. I Bold. know. Bold. Yeah. Thank you. Democracy. <laughs> so that was your, your favorite interview, right? That was my favorite interview by far. And again, I know it's dense, but if I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys learned something. I know I walked out of that conversation feeling so unbelievably energized. Uh, and, and if you did too, if you didn't like it or if you did, let me know. Facebook.com slash Gib. You don't, you don't like it when I put out the negative out there. No, you're, no, no. It's cool. I was just going to say that that it's it, you're the perfect per, uh, person to do these interviews because you li- have listened over the years to so many yes. podcasts, yeah. and you're already a great interviewer that you that you know what you want to listen to. That's when you it. Wanna, yeah. So you ask the questions you want to know about the That's answers to I in your do. own life. Right. Go, go ahead. I'm okay. Sorry. So if you got if you want to if you like the show or you want us to interview somebody else or take it in a different direction, let me know. Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard. I respond to uh, every every message that comes in. Also on Twitter at Gib Gerard and Instagram at Gib Gerard. Right alongside me is at John Tesh on Twitter. Facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we spend a lot of time. We do Facebook Lives, post a lot of videos, respond to comments. That is a great place to tell us what you want and what you think. And uh, at John Tesh underscore IFYL uh, on Instagram is where you can find him. If you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us out a lot. Most of all, thanks for listening. <laughs>